0: Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent 4th Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Episode 17, The Era of Too Many Theologies, 350-360. Last time, we caught up with Constantius the Second, the new ruler of all of Rome's holdings and the inheritor of those warring theological schools that his dad had brought to heel at Nicaea. But those schools are no longer what they once were. Because the Nicene Creed has had a pretty rough 25 years. After a honeymoon period cut dramatically short by the Eusebius' revenge, Athanasius's exile, and the utter inability of all parties involved to be normal about anything, the Nicene Creed has sat, mostly unused and unloved, on the proverbial shelf of the church, with no one but Athanasius to keep yelling that people really ought to pay attention to this. But they did not pay attention to it, and when they did, they mostly rolled their eyes at its odd homoousius language and wondered if there was a better way to express the relationship between father and son. Yet, for all its warts and materialistic connotations, the term homoousius had the very salutary effect of focusing the conversation around something theological. If you recall, up until this point in the story, there really hasn't been that much out-and-out arguing over terms, or even over theologies. Even in the era of too many creeds that we covered a while back, the issues dividing the bishops were often as personal As they were theological. Think about the constant rifts against Marcellus of Ancyra, or the constant accusations of Athanasius' guilt. And even when rival creeds are set up, they just as often talk around or misunderstand each other, rather than directly engaging in argument. But all that is about to change. For starting in the 350s, we are going to see the emergence of several new theological schools whose theologies all revolve around different answers to that prickly question of what to do about this Homoousius language that Nicaea came up with. So we'll spend today's episode discussing them at some length. You'll recall that back in the early 300s, we identified three major theological schools at work, the Homoousians, the Eusebian Friends, and Marcellus of Ansira. At this point, the alliance between Athanasius and Marcellus has effectively merged the Homoousian and Marcellan schools. On the plus side, this gives Athanasius some much-needed theological firepower. On the minus side, it means he keeps having to defend Marcellus's orthodoxy against whatever wacky thing Marcellus has written in the last five minutes. Meanwhile, the UCBI and most of their friends have shuffled off, and in their place, several new groups of theological rivals have emerged. Each of these rivals had a preferred solution to speaking of the father and the son. We'll call the first such group the Heterousian school. As you can probably guess from the name, these thinkers were those committed to the thoroughly anti-Nicene belief that the father and son possess different substances. Now, depending on what you read, you may also hear this group called the Anomian school, which is after the Greek word for unlikeness. Since they thought the father and son had unlike essences, some people prefer to call them that. But we'll be calling them the Heterousians here. So, what did the Heterousians actually think? Well, there are two main thinkers who define their approach, Aetius and Eunomius of Cyzicus. Aetius was the earlier and probably more definitive thinker of the two. He was trained in the theological tradition of the Eusebian Friends, and he had a reputation even among them for being a hardcore subordinationist. In fact, Adius goes so far as to argue that just by virtue of being a son, the son must be of a fundamentally different substance than the father. His argument basically went like this. Now, it was assumed by everybody in those days that the father was utterly and completely simple. In this context, simplicity is not a synonym for stupidity. They were not saying that God the Father had to repeat his pre-algebra class year after year. No, simple meant not compounded or lacking in any parts. In other words, God was not made up of any smaller, more fundamental components. After all, God was the first. So if God had parts, where would those parts have come from? Now, Adius says, if anything generates or is generated by something of the same substance, then it has to be compound. It has to have parts. It's not entirely clear to me why he thinks this is true. Perhaps he imagines that the thing in question would have to contain both the generator and the generated somehow, and those would be two components of it. But whatever he thought, if this is true then it means that the father cannot generate a homoousius son. The father can't generate something of the same substance and be simple. So it must be that the father generates the son by willing into existence a lesser, unlike being. Eunomius of Cyzicus, the second figure in this school, served as Aetius's secretary for a while before becoming a bishop. He enthusiastically repeats Adius' arguments before adding on a few of his own, and Eunomius goes even further in his logic. He takes ingenerate, that agenitos term, as a direct description of the father's very essence. The father's lack of being generated is, in other words, precisely what makes him the father. And if that's the case then by definition the son can't have the same substance as the father since being generated is at the core of the son's distinct identity. Athanasius and the homoousians as you can imagine had a field day with this because after all if the son isn't generated from the father's very being then the son is just a creature like other creatures and that means the heterousians are impious heretics. Now, Eunomius has a very complicated answer to this, and I won't bore you with the details of it. But essentially, Eunomius makes up a special kind of production that the father has that is halfway in between generation and creation, and then says, oh, that's what the father uses to make the son. He names this middle kind of production energy, which nowadays might make you imagine Eunomius as a kind of 4th century yoga instructor, carefully rearranging his healing crystals and reminding you to open your heart chakras as you performed your sun salutations. But only the sun salutations. That's not the same as the father salutations, and if you say they are, he will radically affirm you right out the door of his yoga studio. Of course, energy didn't mean the same thing in Eunomius' day. He just needed a middle term between generation and creation, and that's what he picked. Now, Athanasius has already savaged this logic in his orations against the Arians. Basically, you remember, he said the Arians need to just quit waffling, either say the sun is a creature or he isn't. So Eunomius's position would have looked a lot to him like special pleading. You can already guess that the Heterousians are not going to carry the day, but they have more staying power than it may seem. When Eunomius of Cyzicus loses the day, he and his allies wind up setting up a slew of Eunomian churches that are in communion with him and nobody else. And those churches would persist well into the 5th century, testifying to the depth of loyalty that this theology commanded among some. But for all their staying power, the Heterousians were still a minority viewpoint. Many others wanted to take a more conciliatory approach to the problem. If one side of the controversy insisted that father and son have the same substance and another different substances, then maybe we can just say they have similar substances. This group is referred to as the homoiousians. The Greek preface homoi means similar, which is rather amusing since it's only one letter off from the prefix for same, homo. If you've ever heard the phrase, one iota of difference, as in, whether we order the chips or the fries, does not make one iota of difference to me, well then congratulations, you now know where this saying comes from. For it was here, when the distance between the Homo Homoousians and the Homoousians was, on a lexicographical level at least, just one iota. But on a theological level, the differences were so much more. For starters, the main theological player in the Homoeusian school was Basil of Ancyra. Now, you may remember Ancyra as the place name of Marcellus. That is no coincidence. Basil replaced Marcellus as Bishop of Ancyra after the former was deposed after the Council of Nicaea. So, as you might imagine, there was some tension between the two. Even though Basil had actually defended him, Marcellus had to be just a little bitter reading the works of the man who held the job that he thought was rightly his. And for his part, Basil was super keen not to repeat the mistakes of his infamous predecessor by doing a modalism. To make a long story short, here is what Basil and his Homoeusians said. The goal of doctrine is to help us form the most appropriate conceptions of God. In order to do that, we need to know what we know, and to know what we don't know. Theology does this by reading scripture carefully to see which names and concepts it uses most frequently, but also by humbly recognizing the limits of human abilities to understand divine, immaterial realities. So in the case of the Trinity, we see pretty clearly that there is one metaphor or concept that the Bible uses over and over again that of father and son. Basil, I think, does something both clever and eminently sensible here. He says that the way we talk about God should be determined more by the majority of the biblical texts rather than by arguing over one or two proof texts. Basil probably would have told both Athanasius and the Arians to knock it off with their dozens of arguments over the meanings of Proverbs chapter 8, verse 22, Whether that passage describes the word as a creature or not, the fact of the matter is that the vast majority of passages refer to the word as a son. And so that's how we should think of him, as a son rather than a creature. Now, so far, Athanasius would be very pleased with Basil's logic, and perhaps kicking himself for writing out ten different reasons why he was right about that verse when he could have just used this one. Athanasius would be less pleased, however, to hear what Basil had to say next about this relationship between father and son, because he says not much of anything, really. Basil just tells us that theology must be aware of its limits. Since we can't know the father directly, we can't really know anything about the relationship between father and son. All we can do is say that they are alike in essence. The point of saying they are alike in essence is really only to make sure that nobody's going to go around saying the word is a creature. If the word has a similar usia to God's, then the word must be divine somehow. But Basil doesn't think we can or need to say how. You can probably guess at this point how the Homoousians might reply. If we aren't clear on the relationship between the word and the father, then we aren't clear that the word can actually reveal the father to us. But if the Word can't reveal the Father to us, then salvation is impossible, and we are stuck not knowing the one true God. If we cannot be assured that in Jesus Christ we have come into contact with grade A bona fide divinity, then our hope is in vain. Once again, you can see the staying power of the arguments Athanasius made in On the Incarnation. Even though that text was written well before this time period, its arguments still bear on this debate. And Basil is sensitive to this fact, which is why he doesn't always keep his own rules about theological minimalism. Because he will go on to say, same way Athanasius does, that likeness in activities implies a likeness in essences. So we have some positive knowledge that the word is like the Father, because Jesus does similar things to the Father. In fact, most of the Gospel of John is just Jesus reminding people that he doesn't speak on his own. He speaks what the Father has given him to say. He doesn't do his work. He does the work of the Father. And so then Basil will go even further in trying to answer that old dilemma of how Christ is the wisdom of God. He knows full well Athanasius's old argument that if Christ isn't the wisdom of the Father from all eternity, then the Father seems to have had a different source of wisdom, but this creates two dueling wisdoms, and that just seems very silly. So Basil will thus say that the son has wisdom, and has it in exactly the same simple, incomposite way that the father has it. Ditto with life, and presumably goodness and power and all the rest. He concludes by saying that the son has everything according to essence, and absolutely, as does the father. Which sounds... An awful lot like what a homoousian would say. So, the homoousian approach, though sensitive and perhaps politically viable as a compromise, has the disadvantage of not being very ideologically stable. It's quite easy to push Basil into sounding more like a homoousian or a heteroousian, depending on the arguments being made and the people around. So, having now covered the homoi and hetero options, we have to update ourselves on the Homoousian school. How have they been faring in the years since we first introduced them? Well, Alexander has of course died, leaving Athanasius as the principal flag-bearer of this school, with some support from other bishops around the empire. What has Athanasius been doing since writing on the Incarnation and the orations against the Arians? Well, he has been learning. We see Athanasius produce another work during this time period. This is a long letter, and like most letters in those days, and even today, it doesn't have a formal title. But the letter is all about the Council of Nicaea, and so we usually call it the De Decretis. De Decretis is just Latin for about the council, but of course it sounds so much cooler in Latin, so we use the Latin title. The Road to Nicaea, brought to you by making things cooler in Latin. The Reverend Benjamin Keith Wyatt, magister Brassica agricultura, magister texentes cofinos, ordo senes calorum magnorum titulorum. What does that mean? It means the Reverend Benjamin Keith Wyatt, master of cabbage farming, teacher of basket weaving, order of the guardians of long titles. But you wouldn't have guessed that, would you? Of course not! It's in Latin! Nobody bothers to check dead languages anymore. And now, with the internet, making things cooler in Latin is easier than ever before. Wanting to praise yourself for something but afraid of looking self-involved? Just do it in Latin. Never be embarrassed by your cousin with five master's degrees again. Just whip out your fancy Latin titles and watch as family and friends react to your newfound credentials by saying... Oh, that's cool, I guess. And changing the subject. Making things cooler in Latin. Omne lucrum, non dolor. The Dei De Decretis begins with a brief overview of Athanasius' usual arguments against Arianism. He has tidied up things from his orations and no longer feels the need to give ten arguments as to why the Arians are wrong about Proverbs 8, and instead refutes their logic in a neat little paragraph. He also gives a longer, richer discussion of the relationship between God and symbols. Having heard over and over again for the last thirty years that people don't like Homoousius because they think it implies God is some material thing that extends itself like jello, Athanasius simply says this Look, the Bible uses a lot of terms for both God and humanity. The Bible says that humans create things. But humans don't create in the same way as God. After all, humans are material and were made from nothing, so really all we do is rearrange existing things. God, on the other hand, is immaterial and can create from nothing. So when we are talking about the substance of God, substance doesn't imply materiality, because we're talking about an immaterial being like God. Substance doesn't work the same way for God as it does for human beings. Then Athanasius goes on to say, when we look at the symbols the Bible uses for Christ, we need to pay very close attention to how those symbols work. The Bible describes Christ as the radiance of God's glory in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. Now, when you have a sun, S-U-N, how soon does that sun start radiating? Well, always and immediately. That's kind of what it means to be a star. You have to radiate. If you're not, you've become a black hole or a brown dwarf, or something like that. Just so, the son, S-O-N, has always been with the father, and the father has always had a son, because those two terms are correlative, they imply one another. This is what Nicaea was trying to articulate, according to Athanasius. And this is why, for him, the first important phrase in that creed is not of the same substance of the father, it's from the substance of the father. What the creed was trying to say is that Jesus is the pure expression of the Father's heart, plain and simple, just as radiance is from a star. So then, why did they go on and add that confusing bit about homoousius? If saying that Jesus was from the Father was enough, why go on talking? Well, because Athanasius says, many of the UCBI and friends wanted to interpret from the substance of the Father in a general sense, a too general sense. Because aren't we all from the substance of the Father, if you think about it? I mean, since God created, like, everything, I mean, aren't we all from the Father? I like to imagine the UCBI and friends at the council going full Carl Sagan and claiming that we are all of us, the glorious, radiant stardust, that the Father has just scattered over the universe. The goal of Homoousius was to cut out this kind of chatter by making it clear that the word was on equal footing with the Father, not just another creature. From the Father, but in a special and unique way. Athanasius then goes on to counter some of the arguments that have continued over the past two decades, especially the use of ingenerate or agenitos as a proper name for God. While this word has been around from the beginning, recent documents like the Macro Stitch Creed gave it an important place in the arguments. Athanasius thinks this is a bad idea. I agree because it gets us into all those arguments between agenatos and agenatos that I have been trying so hard to avoid on this podcast. They keep coming up, and I keep trying to dodge them, dear listener. I'm doing my best. Athanasius has different reasons for disliking the terminology, but I'm just going to take the win here and move right on. So, that brings us through three schools of thought, which in normal times would be quite enough schools of thought to cover. But we are not studying normal times, my friends. We are studying the period of too many theologies. And that is why there is a fourth and final school we must cover, the Homoians. As you have probably gathered from this exciting odyssey through Greek prefixes, Homoian comes from that same prefix homoi, meaning similar. Same prefix as with the homoiusians. They are so-called because all the Homoians wanted to say about the son and the father's relationship was that. They are similar. Why say more? You can perhaps see the logic of this school of thought, especially given the controversies I just described. If the word substance is causing so much trouble, if nobody can agree on that, let's just throw it out. I mean, everybody, even the Heterousians, agrees that the son is at least like the father somehow. So why don't we just put that in our creed and be done with it? This logic of conformity was appealing to many, especially those with backing in the imperial power structure, including Emperor Constantius. He will be putting his fingers on the scale in favor of the Homoian position very, very soon. But not just yet. And since, because it would make all our lives easier, is not actually a valid theological reason to reject a term, let's look a little bit more into the logic of the Homoian position they had several objections to Usia language. The first was its materialistic connotations. The second was that the language was unknown to the people, that is, to the average Joes and Janes sitting in the pews who didn't have time for all the fancy theological training the bishops had gone through. Now, that's actually a bit of an odd argument to be making, because Usia was a pretty ordinary everyday word, just like substance is for us. My guess is that what the Homoians meant was that ordinary people weren't thinking much about the substance of God. And they probably have a point there. Finally, and most importantly, the Homoians point out that the Bible never talks about the substance of God at all. Since this term is unscriptural, they say, let's just not use it. The rest of the creeds are full of all these lovely biblically-based phrases Let's just keep them and toss that argumentative, non-biblical stuff right out. The leading luminary of this school of thought was a guy named Acacius of Caesarea, who had succeeded Eusebius of Caesarea in his role. This lineage will give Athanasius no small amount of ammunition, since he will point out that Eusebius signed the Nicene Creed and even wrote a letter about how orthodox its homoousius language was, and now his successor wants to overturn it? Besides dealing with Athanasius's polemic, the Homoians also had some difficulty maintaining their coherence as a school of thought. Because their goal was to just remove the use of usia language altogether, they could forge easy alliances with members of other schools who were more concerned about getting their point across than with using a particular word like usia. At the same time, it also meant the Homoian label got applied to members of the other schools. For example, sometimes you'll hear Atius and Eunomius called radical Hemoyans because they were perfectly happy to say that the father and son were similar. They were similar in all sorts of ways, in will, in glory, in action. They were just dissimilar in substance. So I'm generally going to use homoian to refer to those who attempted not to talk about substance at all, rather than those who agree with Acacius but just want to go further and actually say something about substance. And with that, we are finally done with the theological schools of the 350s. Is what I would say were we not in the era of too many theologies, but we are in that era and so there is actually one more. I know I said the Hamoyans were the final ones and that's sort of true because this last group isn't really a unified theological style, as it is the beginning of a movement that will become even more prominent as the years pass on. And this movement seeks to answer a burning question that I suspect many of you have been yelling at your phones as you've listened to these episodes. We have been talking about the Trinity in these episodes. Trinity implies three things. And yet we have been focused almost exclusively on the Father and the Son, even Nicaea's Creed included almost no information about the poor Holy Spirit. All it said was that they believed in it, nothing about it. So what about the Holy Spirit? Is it fully divine too? Does its status simply stand or fall with a son and there's nothing more to say about it? Well, we are beginning to see the rise of a theological position that targets the Spirit as less than fully divine. These groups of people might have had different positions on the full divinity of the Son, but they were united in their belief that the Holy Spirit was not of the same substance as the Father. Some thought the Holy Spirit was just one of the angels that surrounded the throne of God. While we don't have full information about the origin of this group, it seems like this group had strong ties to the imperial capital. Remember poor Paul of Constantinople? that guy who kept getting exiled alongside Athanasius all throughout the 340s? Well, one of his successors, actually it was the priest who had accused Paul of a crime that kick-started his first exile, well, that priest became the bishop, and he apparently subscribed to this view. His followers became known as Macedonians because this traitor-priest-turned-bishop was named Macedonius. But we will be calling them by their much cooler Greek name, which is the Numenomakoi. This is the Greek phrase for spirit fighters, which is how the Homoousian crowd saw them, as fighters against the spirit and its key role in the plan of redemption. Now normally I try not to refer to groups by the labels their enemies cook up for them, but Numenomakoi is simply too cool not to use. There aren't a lot of documents produced by the Numenomakoi in the 350s, So we don't have a ton to investigate there. There are, however, some documents by their opponents, especially, who else? Athanasius. He wrote a letter to a bishop named Serapion in which he outlined the Numenomakoyan position and his objections against it. From looking at his arguments, we can figure out what he was responding to. First and foremost, the Numenomakoy argued against the spirit's divinity on the basis of several biblical texts. Just like the Aryans had used Proverbs 822 to argue that the Son was a created being, so the Numenamakoi used Amos chapter 4, verse 13, which reads as follows, and I quote, I am the one who establishes thunder and creates spirit, and declares to the people his Christ. End quote. They take this create spirit bit in there to refer to the Holy Spirit. But Athanasius quickly points out that this is dumb. Spirit doesn't have a definite article in this passage and seems to refer to human spirits in general rather than the Holy Spirit. For whatever it's worth, modern scholarship backs Athanasius up here. The NRSV, for example, will translate this passage even more generally. They'll say, I am the one who establishes thunder and creates breath rather than creates spirit. The only way to read this text as about the Holy Spirit is to foist an allegorical interpretation onto it that is not warranted. Based on their need to use these literary tropes to make their point, Athanasius names them the Tropeci, which is a pretty good nickname, but is not up to his previous standard of ariomaniac, and definitely not as cool as Numenamakoi. With that biblical passage addressed, Athanasius moves to a significant argument and one very different from the entire Christological controversy. The Bible calls the Son the only begotten of the Father in all sorts of places, in John chapter 1 verse 14, chapter 1 verse 18, chapter 3 verse 16, chapter 3 verse 18, and in 1 John chapter 4 verse 9, among others. Now. If the Holy Spirit is also divine, then is the Spirit also begotten of the Father? Because if so, then the Son isn't the only begotten anymore. So the Spirit must not be begotten, which means he must not be divine. Athanasius makes two important responses to this argument. The first is that he argues for the similarity of essences on the basis of the similarity of actions. The Holy Spirit shows up with the Father and the Son to redeem the world. The Son and the Father send the Spirit to continue the Son's work with the church. Christians are baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And most importantly, the Holy Spirit is what deifies believers. That word deifies may be a little unfamiliar to you, so let me explain. Ancient Christians believed that the end goal of humanity was to become partakers of the divine nature, to share in God's immortality, bliss, and glory as much as is humanly possible. And not just by sitting around the throne and looking at God like a really pretty object, but by partaking of God's very nature as much as they possibly could. That's a bold thing. Why did they think this, you may be asking? Well, because 2 Peter 1, verse 4 says it. It says that we are destined to become partakers of the divine nature. Now, Athanasius said, the spirit is what deifies us. It's what allows us to partake of that divine nature. And it would be very silly indeed for the father and son to outsource the work of deification to a being that wasn't itself a deity. Athanasius doesn't say this, but it also seems to me like it would be kind of a mean thing for them to do giving the divine nature that you don't get to have to other people. Hmm. I don't think the Father and Son are mean. But anyway, the point is, however you phrase it, the Holy Spirit must be divine. So that's the first reason. The second reason is that, according to Athanasius, the Numidomakoi are inappropriately extending human logic to God. Notice how similar these arguments are to what Athanasius talks about with the Son. again similarity of essences means similarity of actions, and the importance of getting the distinction between God and humanity right. So anyway, the argument is this. God doesn't have a body, so God doesn't divide his being to generate a new person of the Trinity. So although a human father who had two sons that would make them brothers, it's not necessarily so with God. Instead, Athanasius says the spirit is not generated or begotten by the father. The spirit is sent by the son, as it says several times in the Gospel of John. So the spirit has, and I quote, the same relation of nature and order with respect to the son as the son has with respect to the father, End quote. In other words, far from being the son's brother, the spirit is that which the son sends to continue his work. This will be a very important point in the afterlife of Nicaea once we get to the notorious filioque clause. One of the enduring controversies between East and West is just how involved the Word is in the Spirit's procession, and Athanasius is already highlighting some of the key questions that will be involved. But that is for another time. We have just covered five different theological movements active during this decade. Next time, we'll press play on the historical narrative and see how these groups united, split, allied, and fought with each other over the turbulent years of Constantius's reign, culminating in the outrageous Homoian victory known to history as the Blasphemy of Sirmium. It was to provide fuel for the fire of the Homousians' eventual triumph. But for Athanasius and his allies at the time, It could not have seemed like anything but the greatest obstacle yet on their long, hard-fought road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Altar Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltarmag.com.